Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. A trans girl is a girl. She should have the same rights as cis girls. But a lot of the time people know better and they're actually weaponizing ignorance. <laughs> now I'm almost finding myself like on the, on, on the side of fighting for women's sports. Uh, and the organization of the groups that were opposed to our eventual guidelines was immense. So welcome to another episode of the Real Science of Sport. My name is Mike Finch and as usual I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker and today we've got a really nice juicy subject to get our heads around a little bit, something that's been in the news in the last couple of weeks and that is the controversy around transgender athletes in sport. Now just as a bit of a disclaimer, we have done something on this before. I think it was kind of late last uh, last year, 2020. Um, but it's become a bigger story literally in the last couple of weeks more than it ever has. And of course, as we head towards a possible Olympics uh, in Tokyo in a couple of months' time, it is becoming uh, an even bigger topic. And uh, the reason why it's becoming a big topic is two significant things have happened. One of them is that a New Zealand weightlifter who is a transgender athlete looks likely, although we still don't know, to be picked for the Olympic team. Therefore, that could affect the outcome of whatever that uh, competition uh, results are. And of course, the most famous transgender athlete, uh, transgender athlete, and I say athlete because Bruce Jenner used to be a very, very good athlete as a multiple Olympic champion, a world record holder in decathlon. Now, Caitlin Jenner, and he's come out uh, in supporting the fact that uh, transgender athletes shouldn't be competing in sports. So, uh, Ross, just, just explain to us, first of all, the New Zealand weightlifter. Why is that? particularly significant for this time right now? Because that would be the first case of a transgender woman participating, well, a known transgender woman participating in the Olympic Games. And people in this area have had their eye on Hubbard for about three or four years now, because formerly Gavin Hubbard, now Laurel Hubbard, having transitioned in her mid-30s, uh, has been a successful regional weightlifter, so competing for New Zealand in, in competitions in the Pacific Games, for instance, and winning medals there, gold medals. There's a very famous photograph, actually, of a medal ceremony where Hubbard is on the top step and two Samoan weightlifters on either side in second and third, and they actually turn away in a sort of silent, stoic protest against her there. So that was an issue. I remember she participated in the Commonwealth Games, got an injury there, became a headline then. But obviously the Olympics being this massive stage, it will become a, a more massive issue than it ever has been. And the, of course, we'll get into this in this podcast, as we have done before. The questions are around advantage, unfair advantage, retention of male advantage, even after transition. And unfortunately for Hubbard, and I say that because Ideally, you would have this debate without there being an athlete to look at as an example of it, but that's not going to happen. And unfortunately for Hubbard, it's going to be her who is this, the athlete in the spotlight. Um, I'd prefer not to speak about a specific athlete, but that's, yeah. in, in, in fact, it will become one of the three to five big headlines if the Olympics goes ahead is yeah. 
how does New Zealand, because she'll be, you, you said in your intro, she's now qualified to participate. All that remains is for her to be selected by the New Zealand Olympic Committee. If they do make that selection, then it will open up a <laughs> whole can of worms. Yeah. So that, that, was the, that was the big story there. I think everyone knew it was likely to happen. And now it may be very much in the front of our minds. Well, let's just take a a small step back for those of you that uh, are not quite clear what we mean by a transgender athlete. Let's just define what a transgender person is Mm. and in the context of sport, what does that mean? Yeah, so we'll stick to sport because there are obviously, I mean, you've said there are two big things happening. There are things happening literally daily around the world in this area. The Australian government is having debates about it. There are court cases in the US uh, and the UK uh, not necessarily even linked to sports. Sweden has announced changes to how it treats children with respects to transgender medicine and the ethics thereof. So there's always this stuff going so on. What are so, they doing there specifically? Well, there was a there was a big court case, the Kira Bell court case in the UK, where one of the highest courts in the UK said that medical practitioners have to be very careful about hormone replacement therapy in minors because they they cannot make an informed. Uh, choice at that point so they cannot reliably give consent um, and Sweden have, in response to that said that they will no longer do hormone replacement therapy okay. in children younger than 16 so and then in the states they've they've gone with similar things they've been called anti-trans bills it's 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 honestly impossible to keep track of all the stuff that's going on so we'll we'll focus on the sport and I guess for the purposes of sport the the bigger issue is transgender women so this is someone who is male at birth and who then grows up as a boy, becomes a man, assuming they go through puberty um, and that the, the, the reassignment doesn't happen before that. But then at some point in life, because of gender dysphoria, where they feel that their gender, which is the, the social construct, do I identify myself as a man or a woman, differs from the biological sex, I'm male or female. So then what happens is you can now make a transition. And so in the case of Laurel Hubbard, that was done in her mid-30s. And she now lives every day and identifies as legally recognized as a woman, having been born male. Yeah. Now, there is, a, there is such a thing as transgender male, or man rather, where you are born female, and then you can take testosterone to develop, um, well, to transition into being a man if you identify like that. Uh, that's less of a concern for sport because... There's no question really there of, of an unfair advantage, unless of course you want to participate in women's sport, um, but we'll assume that you put, you want to participate where you identify. So we're kind of doing our homework here. So when we talk about gender versus sex, that's always the big debate. Just define gender versus sex because it's important the, in this context. It's one of the key ones, and we'll play in a clip in a moment where you'll see that um, mistake made is gender is a is social construct. It's how you identify. and. I remember as far back as 2009 getting involved in this debate because it's it's relevant when you talk about Casta Semenya. And I remember kind of settling on this idea. It's like you don't tell anyone gender. They, they tell you what their gender is. So if, if you identify as a man or a woman, then that's the, that's gender. And yeah. there's, you would have seen there's, there's dozens of them now. Um, sex is different. Sex is biological. And so people argue this all the time. They say, well, no, there's no such thing as binary sex. But biologically, there is. You're male or female. And it has to do with the size of your gametes. Your, your males produce sperm. Females produce egg. That's a characteristic in, in all living organisms. Yep. 
And that is what is identified in literally, with the exception of one in maybe 10,000, 100,000 cases at birth by a doctor. Congratulations, Mr. Finch, it's a girl. Uh, that's that's a biological sex issue, right. and so it pertains. There are primary sex characteristics. There are secondary sex characteristics. Primary being reproductive function, secondary sex characteristics being the things that emerge during puberty, um, and they would include, for instance, deepening of the voice, hair growth, irrelevant to sport, but mm. they also include increased muscle size, strength, and mass, different development of the skeleton, increased heart and lung size, differences in the tendons and differences lower body fat percentage. Those are very much relevant to sport. And so any parent listening to this, in fact, any person with, with two eyes has can see how puberty changes us. And that is a function of biological sex. It doesn't always work. You get DSDs, differences of sex development, the Castasemenia thing. But for the most part, biological sex is the reason for separation into categories for sport. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. D- just to give us a lot of the listeners who don't know what you do in your day job, I'm just not forget that we, we sit here, we're doing these podcasts and they're, they're sort of an aside to what our day jobs are. You've been very involved in world rugby for the last uh, two or three years now. One of the things that you've been involved with is establishing guidelines for transgender athletes in a sport which is arguably one of the most affected by this. Yeah, and so in 2020, um, beginning of the year, we launched a, a big project to relook at our, our guidelines because evidence was emerging. Uh, and we'll get into this again later in this podcast. There was evidence coming out that the, the lowering of testosterone, which is what transgender regulations by the Olympic Committee typically prescribed, you've got to lower your testosterone in order to be eligible for women's sport, was almost completely ineffective at taking away the biological differences between males and females. Now, that, just explain why that is. Why uh, does it, why does lowering testosterone not have the desired effect in terms of just physical attributes? Because once the testosterone has done its thing in terms of muscle mass and size and skeleton and so on, taking it away doesn't necessarily remove what it did in a symmetrical way. So depending on which system, physiological system you look at, the the degree of change varies from zero, things you cannot change like height, all the way to complete for things like hemoglobin levels. So when you, so we'll start on that end. When you suppress someone's testosterone levels, their hemoglobin concentration, that's the, the red blood cell, that's the compound that carries the oxygen. It's really important, obviously, for endurance performance in sport. That diminishes very quickly. This has been shown in studies. It came up to some degree also in the, in the CAS hearings, um, not necessarily with trans athletes, but with athletes with DSDs. So hemoglobin levels return to female levels almost, Im- well, not immediately, but very quickly after testosterone is lowered. So yeah. in that one, at least, you can say, all right, the testosterone suppression does its job. It takes away male advantage. But when you look at things like muscle mass, lean mass, body fat percentage, muscle strength, and power, there is as yet no evidence that lowering testosterone takes them away, and fairly good evidence that it only makes a very small dent in the original advantage between male and female. So if we were to assess whether we compare elite male and female Olympic athletes, whether we compare typical male to typical female or recreational high school level to high school level, there is about a 30 to 40% strength difference between male and female. There's about a 30% difference in power and between a 10 and 15% difference in running speed. The suppression of testosterone 
has been shown to remove only about a fifth of that advantage at most. Wow. So in, in the studies that came out towards the end of 2019, which really triggered World Rugby to look at this, it was a study done out of Sweden, they found between zero and 5% loss in muscle mass, about a four to 5% loss in muscle strength measured in transgender women 12 months after starting testosterone suppression. So what you have is a initial advantage of X and a reduction in that biological advantage that is much less than X. And so the only conclusion you can make is that in these athletes, there must be some, not athletes, we'll get to that as a limitation. In these individuals, there must be some retention of the biological difference that creates the advantage. Mm. Therefore, there is retention of advantage. And on that basis, sport cannot ensure fairness and inclusion at the same time, that you cannot achieve that balance. And for rugby, as you alluded to, we also have a third imperative to think about, and that's safety. So if, if speed, power, bulk, strength were crucial determinants of fairness, they're also crucial predictors of safety mm. in, the, in the sense that a massive imbalance would be like me being tackled by a 120 kilogram professional rugby player, nobody's idea of a good day out. <laughs> and so we made the decision that because we couldn't balance them, we had to rank them. And we established what was effectively a prioritization. We said, of those three things, what is the core number one priority? And the, and the answer was welfare. Yeah. And so for that reason, we regulate women's rugby to say that if you are biologically male, and if you have benefited, and I use the word benefited in the sporting sense, if you have benefited from testosterone during development, you cannot participate in women's rugby. And of course, that was massively controversial. It came out in October last year. It still is controversial now. I mean, there's many unions that haven't gone with it because there's so much social pressure to, yeah. to still include. And the, this, is a, this is a very volatile, hostile issue where... I think you have good faith scientific arguments on one side, good faith inclusion arguments on the other side, but a whole lot of bad faith stuff happening in between, and it's made it very difficult to debate in a sensible way. Well, I don't want to say this is bad faith, but it certainly came out at a time when we this thing is becoming this controversy is becoming you know bigger and bigger in the world of sports, and uh, I think across the general sort of talking points around fairness around these issues and. The reason why I'm saying that is that a couple of weeks ago, Sarah Silverman, who's an American comedian, came out with a, I think it was a podcast, and uh, this is what she said. I saw Caitlyn Jenner saying trans girls uh, should not play girls' sports. Caitlyn, you're a woman, right? A trans girl is a girl. She should have the same rights as cis girls. If you think a trans girl, what, you think a trans girl is too strong? I. <laughs> what about tall girls as opposed to short girls? What about uh, boys in high school who are teeny tiny and their teammates uh, have already hit puberty and are shaving? Why don't you just have co-ed sports divided by weight or height? I, you know, this is so dumb. They are legislating this shit without one single example of how this plays out. This is not worrying about girls' sports. Uh, believe me, not. I think uh, there are better ways to worry about girls' sports. 
This is not worrying about, this is not what that is. This is not worrying. This is not concern for girls' sports. It's transphobia, full stop. So there we have it. It's uh, a comedian, Sarah Silverman. I, I guess what's frustrating in that situation when you listen to those sort of things is that obviously she's very well known in the state. She's a big celebrity and she's, you know, does a podcast and lots of stand-up stuff. So people kind of believe what she says because it sounds very current and very woke and all those sort of different things. But I think when I listen to that, it, there's this frustration because you and I have chatted about this <laughs> on previous podcasts around these issues and there's such there's so much naivety in that and so much stuff in there that you go, you just you just don't get it. <laughs> I think that's frustration about these sort of things. Yeah, it frustrates me as well. I mean, you can imagine when you've spent hours or weeks, months even of your life thinking about the issues and then someone literally in 35 seconds, she lists about five basic, basic misconceptions or logical, uh, illogical arguments one by one. And I see this a lot on Twitter because often I get tagged into these debates with mm. the same talking points raised. And it is frustrating. It's also, it's a, it's an, unhappy sort of side effect of the fact that sport one of the beauties of sport is that everyone can have an opinion so yeah. you know you and I can watch cycling and you can predict that Pogacar is going to win and I can say Roglic will win and then there's a little bit of tension between us and that's what makes the thing actually appealing fans will argue about team selection and tactics and then they'll all scream at the referee and someone else will say no the ref got it right so the, the polarisation of opinion actually fuels sport yeah. But then you get something like this where there is a minimum amount of expertise and consideration you have to have before you wade into it. But nobody even thinks twice. And yeah. so they just shoot from the hip, they shoot blindly, and these types of things gain momentum. Now, I can I can laugh off Sarah Silverman doing it because she is a comedian. No offense to comedians. But what's happened in the last sort of 18 months especially is that a number of scientists and people who actually do and should know better have pushed the same arguments. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it becomes bad faith. Because often you'll see the same thing being said, but sometimes it's just incompetence or ignorance. But a lot of the time people know better and they're actually weaponizing ignorance. <laughs> and, yeah. that's, and that's where it gets particularly frustrating. And I, you know, just to make the listeners clear, eight nine years ago i would have sided with silverman i wouldn't have done it that way heaven forbid but i i hadn't looked up enough and so my impression was that the lowering of testosterone takes the advantage away and so therefore happy days society can include trans athletes into sport and everyone's going to be happy there's a good reasonable compromise the more you read up on it the more you realize that that simply is not possible and then you have to change your opinion i did mm. and so it's yeah, so now I'm almost finding myself like on the on on the side of fighting for women's sports, because people who should have known better at first didn't. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess to some extent, she also represents a a huge part of society that believes what she says, and oh. a lot of ignorance that's involved in that. Mm. So it's important to recognise that she has a voice that is probably quite a popular voice. If I um, haven't heard someone say "What about tall girls?" a hundred <laughs> times in the last year, I'd be surprised. If someone, if someone said, why don't we do sport by height and weight, like she said there 50 times, I mean, I could write those arguments in my sleep because yeah. we've had to use them so often. Those are such, such popular yeah. rebuttals and they are all equally lightweight. And they're quite inflammatory as well, so they, they work quite well on social media, don't they? Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's much, that's the thing about social media, it's much harder to refute mm. a basic misunderstanding or misconception you have, because you can, you can come up with a slogan 
and it, and it fits into a tweet. But the response to the slogan is 30 tweets, and no one reads them. Well, talking about slogans, she does actually say trans girl. With, I mean, we're not not that we want to pick this thing apart, but I think looking I at what she's, well, we are going to pick it apart. <laughs> I'm quite happy to pick it apart, and I hope <laughs> listeners will also then use these next time they encounter it because this is the stuff that yeah. it, it's it's frustrating. We have to correct it. Yeah, exactly. So that we are, we are going to pick it apart, and the reason why we're doing that is to help people understand why a lot of what she says is so wrong. So let's let's start with the, with, with the, one of the opening uh, statements that she makes: a trans girl is a girl. A bit of one of the a classic sort of statement of of, of facts, which, yeah. which which you don't, which isn't true. Hashtag trans women yeah. are women. We heard that a lot when we um, when we held. So the way World Rugby did it, we held a workshop where we invited people from both sides of the debate, and they included medical, legal, scientific, and activists. And we heard this quite a lot, and especially in response, trans women are women. Let them compete as women. And this this is fundamental to the debate because when you say a trans woman is a woman or a trans girl is a girl I would be quite happy and I think most people in decent civil society would be quite happy with accepting that hmm. in a gender context so there should be no problem with how a person identifies and lives their life in whatever gender identity they wish to no, no worries at all but the moment that gender identity puts them in a situation where they're going to insert themselves into a space that may have very necessary reasons for separation, then it becomes a colliding rights issue. Because my right to identify as a girl might actually have consequences for your right to compete in women's sports, if that makes sense. Yeah. So so what, what I think Silverman misunderstands, and I don't think many people think about, is that Sometimes self-identity can happen and there's no issue at all. Like leave people, do their own thing. It doesn't affect anyone. But when it does, then we have to have a reasonable conversation about whether it affects those people in a reasonable way. Mm. And that's the group of people who've been neglected in this discussion is that nobody was taking the fights up for women, biological females, who have got, and this is what we can explore, have got a right to a space in sport where they are protected against male advantage. Yeah. Now... We can get into that in, in a moment in response to some of the other things that Silverman says. But if you only consider this from the perspective of trans individuals, then you can say a trans girl is a girl and leave it. If you recognize that women's sport exists for necessary reasons, you can then say a trans girl is a girl and a trans woman is a woman. But that is not sufficient to let you into the space because there are reasons other than identity that should allow you into it. And that's the key point that she misses right from the start. Yeah. And she goes on to say she should have the same rights as CIS girls. <laughs> so, yeah, cis girls. Yeah, cis girls. Yeah. yeah. So. Cis girls being. Yeah. What's the, what's or, the acronym for? Uh, cis and trans are Latin words. Cis mm. means same. Trans means same, across. Yeah. Okay. And so cis means that your sex and gender are aligned. So yeah. you were born female and you live as a girl. Right. Or woman. So, so yes, and again, like I don't think decent people would deny people basic rights. But this is a question about sports, and the question should be, very specifically, do you have the right to compete in women's sport if you identify as a woman, yes or no? And to understand that, you've got to understand why women's sport exists and whether identity is the reason for it or not. And so, again, it's the same issue we've just spoken about. There are some places in society where women's spaces should be protected. Sport is one of them. There are others, prisons, rape counseling centers, and so on, medicine, 
potentially. There are very distinct biological and physical reasons why it makes sense to have spaces that are exclusive for females, biological females. Yeah. There are also, by the way, ethical reasons for this. Um, you would know that in the 19, I think it was 1928 Olympics, women ran the 800 and some of them collapsed at the finish line and they said women are not strong enough and tough enough for this event. They cannot do it. And it was 1984. I mean, that's in our lifetimes that the first marathon for women was held in the Olympic Games. Yeah. I saw the other day that they're going to have a Tour de France for women in 2022. So nobody in their right minds would say that women's sport and men's sport are equal. It's very clear that women's sport has been held back in the past. So you could argue ethically that women's sport should actually be prioritized, but at the very least it should be equal. And the only way you can achieve equality in women's sport is to separate it from men, male and the male advantage. And if you separate it, you must protect that boundary. That's the key here. Yeah, very important part mm. of that discussion. So, I mean, she goes into the old chestnut saying, uh, what about boys whose teammates, um, sorry, what, a, what um, you think a trans girl is too strong, what about tall girls? And you mentioned a little bit about this uh, before we started getting to the nitty gritty. Yeah, so many times, oh, tall people have advantages in basketball. Yes, they do, but that's what sport is looking for. So here's the, here's the paradox, and, and like we'll do this, I'll ask you some questions for changes. When you're watching the Jira over the weekend and Egan Bernal wins the stage and takes the pink jersey, why is he celebrated? Well, he's certainly the best rider of the day. Right. Yeah. And the race so far. Yeah. And let's assume, okay, lots can change. There's two weeks to go. But he'll make it to Milan and he'll be in pink and he'll be celebrated as the Giro winner. Mm-hmm. A few months ago, we watched some of the Flanders races and we see Mathieu van der Poel or Van Aert or Pidcock, whoever getting celebrated. Why do we, we celebrate them? Because they've shown they're the best. Now, the question is why are they the best? Well, they're the best in their category. But why? What made them the best? Uh pushing me here because they are physiologically they have an advantage they might have a advantage in terms of their development and the opportunities they had when they were young mm-hmm. um, there's probably a mental advantage they have in terms of being able to have big match temperament right. compared to other athletes so all those yeah. things yeah, but we'll, those we'll things. pick up the first of those physiological advantages mm. this is like a testing as we you've hosted the show with me now for uh, almost two years oh the pressure uh, what, give me two physiological advantages that make someone a great cyclist uh, I would well your your muscle strength so your lean muscle mass must be an advantage yeah. and I'd imagine your cardiovascular system so we can call that VO2 max for yeah. instance if yeah. we've all heard this term yeah so how much right. red blood cells blood cells I have in my blood will make me better at endurance events for so instance. that's a third one now so third one that's yeah. a third one okay so anyway we, this is somewhat long-winded I apologize listeners but we're getting to the point here <laughs> is that when we celebrate a champion athlete we are we are celebrating excellence by finding through sport people who possess attributes that others do not have that's it mm-hmm. so when we watch Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal playing in the in the final of the Rome Masters last night we're seeing two people who possess strength speed coordination agility mental factors are also there though harder to measure obviously same thing when we watch cycling when we watch running and there's a 202 marathon at the weekend in Milan like we're looking at it's a definable, if not always knowable, set of physiological characteristics. That's the key, and sport is trying to find them. Height is one of them. Like, there's no doubt that if you are tall, there are some sports that you are predisposed to be better at. But now let me ask you this. When you watch Annemiek van Floyten win a classic, when you watch Naomi Osaka win a Grand Slam tennis event, or when you watch Katie Ledecky win an Olympic swimming gold medal, are you looking for anything different compared to the men? 
what you're, you're looking, I mean, obviously all of those athletes within those categories have, yeah. an, like Osaka would have a category because, well, she's not a category, but she's obviously taller, so she has some exactly. physical advantage. But within those sports, she will have an advantage. And I guess basketball players will be largely taller. And I guess also tennis players will be largely taller, though Correct. not always. And Van Floyten, similarly, will have a high VO2 max. Yeah. She'll have that lean and muscle advantage. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the key. So when we reward excellence in sport, we are using sport as a way to filter out those people who possess an attribute or a combination of attributes that sets them apart from their peers. It's all about looking for, quote, unquote, unfair advantages. But if we had one race... And Mathieu van der Poel had to race with Annemiek van Floyten. You would never see her in the race. She'd yeah. be gone off the back, finishing half an hour later than he would be. If you let Osaka play in the same tennis tournament as the men, she would not make it out of the first round. She would not make it out of the qualifiers. So the, the key point I'm trying to get across here is that there's a paradox in sport. We are looking for unfair advantages. We're looking to find people who are exclusive, who are excellent, who are in a distinct minority, and we're going to reward them for those attributes. But we're trying through sport to reward both male and female for the same attributes. Shelley and Fraser Price and Usain Bolt are the same human beings with respect to sprinting. They have the same metabolic excellence, neuromuscular uniqueness, if you wish, that makes them Olympic champions. Yet one of them is 12% faster than the other one. And that's the difference that categories filters out. Mm. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you'd literally have to have a category for short people, tall people, people with long feet and swimming versus people with short feet and swimming, yeah. all that sort of thing. 18 categories, because yeah. who knows how many, how many of those biological and physiological attributes make up swimming performance? There could be 50. Mm. So assuming you could measure all of them and then filter out, in theory, you could actually have 18 Olympic champions. Yeah. But that's not what sport's doing. It's actually intended to reward Michael Phelps, who possesses more than any other human being ever, a combination. But but this reductionism nonsense of like, oh, it must be his big feet. There are many people with bigger feet than Phelps who don't <laughs> swim well. That's the point. There are it? many people yes. with long arms and Michael Phelps' physique who haven't been great swimmers. He's got that plus a dozen other things. But then the thing is, and this is what these folk never think about, is does Katie Ledecky not have them too? Of course she does. She's got the same things that swimming is intended to recognize, find, and reward. Mm. In the same way that Van Floyten has got the same physiological characteristics that the best male cyclists have got, and the sport is has to identify and reward her for having them. And if we didn't have a women's sports category, we would no longer have the opportunities to recognize half the world's population in sport. Yeah. So when Sarah Silverman says, what about tall girls? The, the, the answer is, what about them? There's, there's a space for them. There are plenty of tall women in the world. None of them have ever played in the men's NBA. Yeah. There are plenty of tall women in the women's NBA because that's what that sport is meant to recognize, among other things. So what about tall girls? Nothing. There's no category for them. It's not a protected class. For sh there's no protected class for short people. And in actual fact, we celebrate someone who possesses height plus all the other elements of athleticism. But if we didn't do that within a women's category, the, the sport would have no meaning because a factor that overwhelms all the others would dominate. Last, last analogy is boxing has got weight categories mm -hmm. because all other things being equal, the heavier fighter wins. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's why these guys literally dehydrate and push themselves into seriously unhealthy states to make weight the day before, and then they regain that weight because they know that the lower they can fight, the better off they'll be. Because mm. even a two kilogram difference to a 65 kilogram boxer is so important in that sport that it actually becomes decisive. So if you didn't have weight categories, boxing would no longer reward balance, strength, speed, footwork, technique, timing, coordination, and endurance. It would still have elements of those, but it would, it would reward strength and power so much more that it would actually overwhelm the sport and that would become the predominant thing. And that's why female sport exists, is because the, the benefits of androgens, testosterone during development, make such a massive difference that if you don't filter out that benefit, they overwhelm every single sport basically that we play. She mentions also, what about boys whose teammates have hit puberty? Is it the same argument? It's exactly the yeah. same argument. And even there, like, that's a timing thing. And there are people whose lives work is, is dedicated to understanding differences in maturation. I mean, we've spoken in this podcast about talent and coaches often pick early developers instead of late because they confuse maturity with ability. So people understand that. They know that. But that, there's no category. In fact, there is a category for that. That's the reason we don't let 16-year-olds and 13-year-olds play together. Yeah. Because we know that, in fact, even 15 to 14, a 15-year-old, all things being equal, will beat a 14-year-old. So if they ever did compete, because we're going to inch towards this argument, if we ever did have a small boxer fight a big one and beat him, that small boxer would have to be absolutely exceptional. Mm. In the same way that if you had a good male cyclist lose to a female cyclist that female cyclist is world-class but there are lots of very good female cyclists will beat plenty of male cyclists exactly, exactly. so there is overlap in performance of course, yeah. there is huge overlap in fact i would venture to say that the best women cyclists beat 99 percent of men yeah yes by, by quite a lot i mean yeah. handily you'd be hammered yeah but the best men are 10 to 15 percent better than the best woman and that's the group that matters or typical male versus typical female best high school best high school that's a difference so so the overlap argument is irrelevant and so is yeah. this what about tall short small teeny weeny boys whatever well, she talks on. about height why don't we have separate categories for height and weight i mean it's it's all the same stuff which it's it's all uh, the same theme. Yeah. We have we have categories for weight in boxing, judo, yeah. martial yeah. arts, combat sports. Yeah. But we would never we would never in our lives dream of letting a sixty eight kilogram male fight in the women's sixty eight kilogram category. Yeah. Why? Because even when you correct for mass, males retain a massive strength, power, speed and endurance advantage mm -hmm. compared to women. You know the, the punch power difference between male and female is about hundred and sixty percent. Wow. Okay. It is an enormous difference. Mm. Uh, and weight just because of lean muscle mass, essentially <laughs> general strength. Lean muscle mass, nervous system adaptations, uh, and then there's differences within the muscle that yeah. create power that the male can generate that the woman cannot. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I may be laboring the point, but so many people get this wrong that maybe it's it's worth laboring. Is if if so, weightlifting, for instance, Hubbard's event at the same weight category because they compete in weight categories. The men are still lifting thirty percent heavier than the women. So if you created categories for height and, and weight, all you would end up doing is filtering all the women out because everyone in the Olympic Games would still be men. So it's not going to work. And so it's, it's another argument that would eradicate women's sport. Mm -hmm. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So she goes on to add, what about legislating without one single example of how this plays out? And we already know that there's been a couple of examples, so that's not necessarily true either. Yeah, and those examples are the, the ones we mentioned, Hubbard in the Olympics probably. There's a few athletes. There was an article came out yesterday that mentioned eight trans women who are all vying for slots in the Olympics. I suspect that six of them are probably real long shots to the point of no hopers. But Hubbard is one, and then there's volleyball player from Brazil. There's a couple of others, actually, who, if things went exactly right for them, might also end up in Tokyo. There are footballers now in Argentina. I read an article yesterday about a golfer who wants to compete on the women's PGA Tour in the U.S. So the examples of this are growing, which is logical, because I think the prevalence of transgender is growing in the community. I think 15, 20 years ago, compared to now, I remember in Stockholm, we visited the andrology clinic and the guy who heads it up said to us that they started, there with the one clinic in Sweden. He says there are now eight in Stockholm. Wow. As in one, and, and that's, that's over the eight, last 15, city. 20 years. Eight andrology wow. clinics in, in Stockholm, I think was, was the number. And so it's quite clear that, the, that the, the prevalence is increasing. And as that happens, it will impact on sport. Even in the US though, and this is relevant to Silverman, is there are cases of high school and college athletes where this is playing out um, this argument about it's it's not common and give me an example of it is, comes up a lot I had a discussion last week on Twitter with someone out of Colorado Roger Pilker Jr who was saying a similar thing and saying that it's it's such a small problem that it's actually not worth fighting over you should just include it because there are literally only a dozen of them or whatever it is now I don't know if it is only a dozen but I also think that's a very bad way to run a fairness argument because yeah. it, it, yeah, I, th I think there's there's issues of precedent there, and also I think it's what are you suggesting that you should just allow allow transgender athletes to participate because there's not that many of them, therefore they're unlikely to make an impact. He's saying if that's effectively what he's saying, and he's saying that if you want to spend time, and Silverman says the same thing, if you want to spend time protecting in women's sports, there are a dozen other ways you can do it. And there's no doubt that that's true. I mean, the, a lot of the people who've waded into this debate, I suspect, don't really care much for women's sport. They care about this element of it. Mm. But I'm not going to impugn their involvement. I'm, I'm interested if they're right or not. I'm not really interested in their, in their motives as much. Um, I, I find that though quite... After this discussion with Roger, I found myself thinking about it. You know, like the world, the world at the moment is facing, I think, two major crises. One is this COVID thing and the other one might be climate change. Now, I'm a sports scientist. And I remember thinking after this discussion is like, if, if we apply that logic to everything, you know, that there are much more serious things that we should be looking at. What about X, Y, Z? Why are you focused on this when you should be focused on like the big stuff? Then then my, my entire life is meaningless. No, it's so stupid to argue. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm care about two things. That's I'm diverging a little no, bit here to, to say that. And, and the thing is that this issue matters enough to enough people. We heard it as well in the rugby argument, by the way. They said there's only going to be six or seven in, in England. 
Mm. We say, well, it's not six or seven. It's in the safety argument, it's potentially everyone who plays against them. So yeah. it's actually hundreds. Yeah. And in this instance, if you start talking about unfairness, one athlete takes a place out of a team from another athlete. That could affect 20 people. Yeah. Because any one of those 20 might have been vying for that. Sl- so it scales pretty quickly, I think. But just I suppose it, it can get out of hand down the line. And once you well, start opening it up, then more potentially transgender people could come through the ranks because they see an opportunity. That's the precedence argument yeah. for it, yeah. exactly. And so, and, and I, th- I think those arguing for allow it until it becomes a problem understand that once you let the genie out the bottle, it's much more difficult to put it back in. Definitely. So, so what they would want to do is they'd want to open it up now and then by 2028, when there are 40 candidates for the Olympic Games, they'll say, well, you can't undo it. Show me, show me compelling evidence that this is unfair. Well, mm. a- anyway, so, so this argument about it's scarce and therefore it should be allowed and it's not a big issue. So you guys are all just bigoted for complaining about it. You should rather go look at doping or funding and equal pay for women in sport. Those issues matter massively, of course. Mm. But this is this seems like peak whataboutery to me, and it's just it's a, it's a, it's a fairly insulting argument if I you mean, apply Sil- it to other things. Silverman has as well. a go, and she starts you know, talking about the fact that it's transphobia. No. You know, mm. essentially, I mean, it, it's what you're saying in all the on the, all these in this debate and the ones we've done before is that this is all about fairness for women's sport. Really, that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's 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 as much about protecting women's sport but it's also about fairness and people always think this is unfair in fact it is about making it fair yes because you see the thing the difference is your perception of this now well and before not it's now, unfair for a few people is that you recognize that there are different parties affected by it yeah and so see see the the, the difference is she hasn't recognized that there are other people mm. She's only seeing it from a trans perspective. She's, mm. she's unable to see a different perspective on this. Mm. You know, take the coin out and look at it on both sides and say, actually, no, these are not the same. Because until you can do that, you don't see this as a colliding rights issue. Mm. And so her only prerogative is inclusion. She doesn't realize that in sport, and this is, the, this is why it's a colliding rights issue, by the way, is because inclusion means exclusion. Yeah. Because sport is a zero-sum game. Generally speaking, one, there's one Olympic medal and my place on that podium means you can't have it. Mm. Um, selection into teams is exactly the same thing. 11 slots on a soccer team and, or 15 in the squad, whatever it is. And then, of course, inclusion might also mean safety. So these are, these are the reasons that it becomes a colliding rights issue. And if you start thinking about sports like rugby, uh, karate, kickboxing, boxing, but speaking of British kickboxing had a campaign um, last week where they're actually actively looking to get trans women into British kickboxing. Are you, are you guys nuts? Because now you're inviting people who've got this biological male advantage mm. and a lot of them might come in and they might be relatively weak biological males fighting against good females. You won't notice that difference. It would be like me riding with Annemiek van Floyten. I'm still losing. <laughs> but if there comes along a case of a biological male in the top 5% of that sport, that represents a massive physical risk in kickboxing. I mean, can yeah. you imagine? You're, you're, you're effectively sanctioning male-female violence. I mean, there must be some legal ramifications if it, they allow this to happen. That's exactly sure. what I was getting at. And yeah. the legal advice that we got was that there are potential issues around um, acceptance of risk because people walk onto a rugby field or into the boxing ring, whatever it is, understanding that there's some degree of risk, but they believe that that risk is being managed to an acceptable level. And one of the things that you cannot consent to is the possibility that you might now go and fight a biological male. 
how, how do you possibly consent to that yeah. if if it's allowable and allowed in this in this way and that's a that's a massive issue for the collision sports and the contact sports um and mm. i mean the combat sports it's it's humongous issue so yeah. so so that that becomes an an issue as well but and so you're quite right the the, if you if you see this as colliding rights and you're a reasonable person, then you would very quickly ask, well, is this fair for everyone? No. Do I care? Maybe. Maybe I don't. Maybe I only care about trans athletes, in which case Sarah Silverman's your, your person. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you care about women in this debate, biological females, then I think you've got to start saying, okay, uh, they deserve a, a closed space. They deserve a... Uh, protections that sports should safe afford space, to them yeah. safety yeah. and opportunity equal opportunity there's legal precedent for this title nine in the u.s is a legislation that gives women equal opportunity that's now being contested obviously because of these cases in england for instance there's a gender recognition act which also allows for discrimination on the basis of sex where sex is a powerful factor affecting that function and sport is one of those so there are le- legal vehicles also in play here. I'm, no, I'm nobody's idea of a legal expert, but that's that's the point here. And it's just it's so frustrating when someone's first response is you're transphobic because a they haven't recognised the wholeness of the issue, b they've lacked the ability to see a step out and and see another perspective, and then c it just it shuts the debate down right away because yeah. they're obviously not interested in thinking about it, and there are quite important things to think about here. So just to take it to the next level, we've got a couple more sound bites to play because they're all, both of them are quite relevant to, to our debate today. One of them is Veronica Ivey, who is being interviewed on CNN, and she takes quite a, I guess, an extreme view on this debate. That those born male have a natural physiological advantage that also includes differing levels of testosterone. You know the argument. Your response to that is what? Yeah, it's uh, it's a nonsense argument. So depends on how much time you want. Let me get into the weeds because I can literally spend hours on this. How about thirty? How so, about thirty seconds? <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is um, testosterone. Your natural, internally produced endogenous testosterone has zero impact on your athletic performance, and we know that. But we didn't know that until 2013. Because everyone just assumed that, well, testosterone is why men are bigger, stronger, faster. But when we finally studied it, there's no relationship between natural testosterone and performance. So why is testosterone banned? Well, every body produces a different amount. And when you add to it through exogenous means, doping, there is a performance advantage. But when you take a body's natural amount and you drop below it, there tends to be a performance disadvantage. For example, in... Uh, one study, they found in this elite set of male athletes, some men below the women's average for testosterone were competing at no competitive disadvantage with men that had 40 times as much testosterone. So that was Veronica Ivey, who became the first transgender world champion in Masters Track Cycling in the 35 to 39 age group category. And I think uh, what she's suggesting there, and if I'm understanding her correctly, is that she's suggesting that testosterone, you did touch on this a bit at the start of this podcast, that testosterone is not a measure of performance. Therefore, a transgender athlete doesn't have an advantage. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, She's... 
it was 2018 when she won that title as Rachel McKinnon, changed her name, I'm not sure why. But she's become the most outspoken activist in support of the idea of, of inclusion in women's sport purely on the basis of self-ID and legal recognition. So if you say, I'm a woman, you participate as a woman? As long as you're legally recognized as such and you live your daily life as, the, as that. So she's, she's on the extreme end of the inclusion spectrum, effectively and is an interesting character, very abrasive, has, has caused a lot of controversy, just left a position as a philosophy researcher, I think, now in she's the she's a US. professor of physiology. Uh, at philo- the, philosophy, yeah. definitely not physiology. Sorry, sorry, as a philosophy we, at the can, College of Charleston. Yeah. I can assure you that physiology is not yes. her forte based on what we've all just heard there. I'll, I'll get into that but in a she's moment. Not, but she's not just you a person because she's clearly, in terms of her academic background, she's... Um, <laughs> I can't say she suggested, but obviously her ideas around this are controversial. Yeah, her thesis was on, on like basically effectively lying, her philosophy of telling the, not the truth. Um, but anyway, that's a subject for another time. <laughs> so, so the reason the reason that the questions this was on CNN, a show called Smirconish, and he's he asks this question about testosterone. The reason that question matters is because hopefully early in this podcast, everyone was brought along this understanding with us that. The reason women's sport has to exist is because there is a group of humans, biological male, who develop under the influence of these androgens like testosterone. And these are hormones that develop what are male characteristics. And they provide such a large biological difference, which translates into performance advantage, that a category has to exist for people who don't have it. This makes sense. So if testosterone is the root cause during development, of these performance differences. The sporting authorities in their desire to be inclusive, and I'm saying this is a good thing, th- thought, what if we fix this problem by lowering the testosterone? And thus the policy was born that you can, co- can compete or participate in women's sport if you reduce your testosterone levels below, at that point it was 10 for 12 months. In other words, if you take away the root cause, you will reverse the the, um, the the advantage and the advantage goes away and now we can achieve inclusion and fairness. Now I've already explained to you earlier that the moment you assess the evidence and you look at this from studies that are actually well conducted, you recognize very quickly that there is no basis by which inclusion and fairness can coexist. Would you agree like from what we said earlier? Yep. Now, those studies are contentious. People can argue that they haven't been done on athletes and they haven't been done in the populations of interest and so forth. But at this point, there is no evidence that the advantages are removed and plenty to suggest that it is retained. So on that basis, inclusion and fairness are no longer compatible. But And, and the, the reason this matters, by the way, is because once you understand the male-female differences and you understand that the policy exists to lower the testosterone, your single question should be, does it work, yes or no? Now, the answer is no, it doesn't work. There's no evidence at all that it works. But what Ivy is pushing for is actually a bypass of even having to worry about it, which is interesting and it creates a couple of dilemmas for her. So in in her response to that question, she's trying to justify that this focus on testosterone as giving biological males the advantage is misplaced because there's no evidence that testosterone improves performance in the first place. I mean, it sounds so simple to understand that. 
what I struggle with with these sort of things, when you've got somebody who goes on a, on a CNN like that and makes those sort of statements, it makes it sound so believable. Why is yeah. it, do you think, and, people struggle to understand this? And that, you see, when she says that, this this is quite a nuanced argument. And I call these people like, they <clears throat> these are biological flat earthers. They're the testosterone denialists. When she explains that and there's no one there at the same time to say, whoa, hang on a moment, you're actually being dishonest disingenuous or ignorant about true physiology that perception is now propagated around the world and a hundred people have listened to that and said oh i heard an expert on philosophy say that there's no difference in performance as a result of, of testosterone so therefore there's no problem the truth is that ivy is being extremely disingenuous or um deceptive in arguing that when we when we talk about this issue transgender women in sport we are asking whether women, sorry, let's try that again. We are asking whether there's a difference between males and females. Mm-hmm. Within males and within females is irrelevant to the discussion, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm not interested in whether the eight men who are gonna run in the, eight, in the 100 meter final in Tokyo later this year are ranked in order of testosterone at the finish line, yes or no. It doesn't make a difference whether Usain Bolt has more testosterone than the guy who comes second in this in in the 2016 games. Mm. It doesn't matter whether Eliud Kipchoge has got the highest testosterone levels of any marathon runner, because he's within a category of people who are all similarly androgenized by testosterone. Mm. What matters is testo- is Kipchoge compared to uh, a, a female marathon runner at the same time, Jep 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 or Jep Koskai rather. Sorry. Yeah. And in the same way, when so when, when Ivy takes this issue and tries to deceive us into thinking that it's about a male-female difference within a category, she's being extremely dishonest. It's male versus female. Now, the best analogies I can think of here is, is if we looked at the Olympic Games marathon and we tested all those 50 or 100 athletes and we looked at VO2 max, VO2 max would not predict the finishing results of the Olympic marathon. No. The guy with the highest VO2 max would not necessarily win the race. It could be someone with an average in the 50th percentile VO2 max. Similarly, if we went to the NBA and we tested the players for height, very easy, we measure how tall they are, the best players in the NBA are not necessarily the tallest within the NBA. Why? Because everyone's tall. It's, yeah. already, been excl- it's, it's already been selected out of the general population. Similarly, in the Olympic marathon, everyone has a high VO2 max. It's already been selected out. So therefore, it loses its predictive value within that narrow population. So there's a range issue going on here. So when Ivy tries to convince us that there's no effective testosterone in males and in females, she is making a very basic mistake, which I can only think is deliberate, of ignoring the fact that that male population is already androgenized and the female population already is not. And so there would be no expectation that testosterone makes a difference anyway. Mm. Mm. What you should ask is whether the male compared to the female looks different. And then the answer is massively. Yeah. So the final clip we got is from a Megan Kelly show, which is a very well-known podcast in the States. She's an American journalist, lawyer, political commentator, talk show host, and she was on Fox News for a number of years. And uh, this is uh, one of the interviews that she did recently. Their lawyers have said in the lawsuit, look, neither Terry nor Andrea is undefeated and neither have dominant dominant race times among high school girls nationally. You know, that they're beatable by, by the right girl, uh, cis girl, you know, 
born a girl and identifies as a girl her whole life. Um, by the right girl, they're beatable. So what do you make of that? I just think that, you know, if you see these races, you see videos of you know, biological males running against us, you can just see that they're so far ahead of us and that the majority of us just can't reach their times. And one time that Chelsea did beat one of the transgender athletes, it's because the athlete with the top time got disqualified because of a false start. So it wasn't, it was only fair because the athlete wasn't allowed to run in the race and she was only able to win. And she lost so many titles and so many chances to get the spot that she deserved. So I guess uh, when you listen to that clip, it's it's talking specifically, um, she's talking to, uh, you'll obviously explain it yourself, but she's suggesting that if transgender athletes were so such an advantage that they'd be all the champions would be transgender athletes that's essentially what she's yeah. suggesting yeah and so this is an argument about the the absence of their existence in sport proves mm. that there's an absence of an advantage and in this particular incident uh, or clip she's talking to one of the now college athletes in connecticut who is one of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit in that state to try and have transgender athletes regulated from not participating in girls sport and so this is a very common argument, is if, if they had this advantage, they would win everything. Mm-hmm. And yet you, a biological female, have sometimes beaten them, and other biological females can beat them, therefore there's no advantage. Now, the, I, I can't believe, I, and again, you should see how often I have to explain this on Twitter, I can't believe it's people... It's hard to do that in 240 characters. Yeah, they end up being like six, <laughs> they end up being like 60 tweet threads to Twitter try and explain pistols. this. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's frustrating. So let me, let me give you a couple of examples. In 2007 or 8, I forget exactly when it was, Oscar Pistorius, before he became infamous, was famous as a track sprinter, double amputee running on these carbon fiber blades, which very clearly, in my opinion, were giving him an advantage. From the beginning, you could see that. But it became a big issue. And he went to the Court of Arbitration for sport. And one of the arguments he used in his defense was that if he had an advantage from these blades, he would be winning, and he wasn't. He was running 46 seconds. He was on the borderline of qualifying for the Olympic Games. And amazingly, As an able-bodied athlete. As an able-bodied athlete. He wanted to run in the able-bodied Because he was dominant in Paralympics. Winning by seconds. And amazingly, Cass sort of semi-sided with that argument. They said if this advantage was so large, then we'd expect him to be winning by a long way. Couldn't believe it at the time. Another example, let me, me, and I'll come back to that, because... What, what what ultimately his story shows is the same as the trans athletes. Another example is, if, let's say you and I are cycling yesterday and we're going up a little climb, 10 minutes long, and you can produce 300 watts. Now, the best cyclist, let's, and our mate Richard is riding 400 watts. He's going to ride away from you. If I gave you a motor on your bicycle that gave you 50 watts, would you beat him? Uh, no. Yeah, because it's not enough. No. Have you now proven that motors don't work? Uh, well, yes, less the motor was more powerful, but yes. <laughs> exactly. And so and the same th- you can argue the same thing with respect to doping. Is You could take any guy that you just pick up off the street and say, I'm going to give you the world's best doping program. Would that athlete be an Olympic champion? No. Not necessarily. Maybe. Maybe. If, if you they got, did the right training. If you got lucky. Yeah. If you got lucky and you happened to pick a guy who was already within 8% of the world's best. It's the Lance Armstrong argument to suggest that he was the best he was the best doper of a bad bunch. Well, there's that also. <laughs> so so with all that factored in. Yeah. An advantage that you get doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will win, 
because it depends on where you start from. Mm. So if I gave you a 50 watts advantage, you would still not beat Richard because you're starting from a base that's too low. If you were within 20 watts of him and I gave you 50, then you're beating him. If you're within five or 6% of an elite athlete and I give you drugs that help you by 8%, you'll win. Mm. But if you're 30% behind the best, there's no amount of drugs on earth that are going to help you before they kill you. That's right. And that's the thing with the, the trans debate. And it's, I know that this is going to sound blunt and harsh, but I'll, let me say it in the context of Pistorius. The reason Pistorius wasn't winning able-bodied races is because he just wasn't that good an athlete. So he had, a, he had an advantage from those blades, but he wasn't athletically good enough to take advantage of them and become good enough to win. He was good enough to go from being a mediocre runner to being on the cusp of the Olympic Games, but not to go from mediocrity to dominating. If you gave the same technology to an athlete who was 5 or 10% better, then you would see that outcome. So the base level, the level from which you start, influences the level at which you end with an advantage, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose the counter-argument to that is that he already, he did have some disadvantage. Well, in that, in that case, yeah. yes, he, there was a disadvantage at the start. Which you have to take into account. What eventually, what eventually happened is that the biomechanist called Peter Wayand out of Texas was able to use his modeling. He understood sprinting better than anyone else and work out that Pistorius had this never seen before ability to reposition his legs at high speed because the mass of those blades was so low. And he said, well, if he didn't have that ability, he would be about 11 seconds slower. So eventually they quantified the disadvantage. So even if his start was two seconds too slow, which it wasn't, it was one, maybe, mm -hmm. he still had a massive net advantage. So in the end, the right decision would have been reached there. But anyway, this is not about the carbon fiber blades. Yeah. It's about the transgender issue. So when we ask a question like, why are there not more transgender athletes? It's because those who are making the transition are not good enough to start with. It's not all transgender athletes are world-class athletes. It's simple. Yeah. And so if you, take, if you take this difference, the typical sprint difference is 10 to 12%. That's the male-female difference. That's a massive difference. There are thousands upon thousands of boys and men who run faster than the fastest woman. So that, that gap, that 10 to 12% between Bolt and Fraser Price, or whatever it was, um, 2016, is, is 10 to 12%, and it fits 10,000 people inside of it. But the, that, that 10,000 people is still only 1% of the world's population. I mean, how many men can run under 10.7 for 100? Very few. Yeah. So until someone from that select group makes the transition, they're not gonna dominate women's sport. Weightlifting, the strength events, it's a bit different because the initial advantage in those strength events is about 30-40%. Mm. So now you can go from being maybe a little bit more mediocre because as long as you're 20% behind the best woman and you make a transition, even if you lost 8 or 9%, you'd still be better than that woman. Mm. The, 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 the sums make sense, right? Yeah. And so the reason we haven't seen more trans athletes dominate is because the baseline level of those athletes is just not high enough. Yeah. It's, it's real simple and it's harsh, but that's how sport is. Um, you, can, you, don't, you, don't, you don't become an elite female unless you're actually quite a good athletic male. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we go riding, we're, we're better than average, but like I wouldn't describe myself as anywhere close to sub-elite even, never mind elite. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So me transitioning would be worthless, but the guys who are 10% better than I am, Mm. They're close enough that if they did it, given what we know about biological advantages, they would potentially be in a position to, mm. to dominate. So, so the scarcity of these cases says more 
about the initial level of the athletes who make up those cases than it does about the fact that there's an advantage. The bottom line is that you don't assess advantage as winning. Mm. You assess advantage as pre versus post. And how much did you gain? So if I gave you that 50 watt motor, the only thing that matters is were you faster than yourself? And so in, in the transgender issue, it's like a little bit more complex and nuanced. The only thing that matters is you had an initial biological advantage by virtue of your male physiological development. Yeah. The only thing that matters is did any of that remain behind? If the answer to that's yes, then it's an unfair advantage. Yeah. And then the last thing I'd no, say is... No what percentage of that bit that remained behind exists. If right. any of it remained behind, it's an advantage. Correct. Yeah. If it was 100 units to start with yeah. and it ends up at 20, that's the 20 that's the advantage, advantage yeah. that the, the people you're now going to compete against don't ever have access to. So that's the philosophical issue around advantage that people don't always necessarily understand. And then the, the last point I'll make is that it's not always about winning when it comes to sport. It's about it's, the safety doesn't care for winning. Because that's 30 people playing a rugby match and yeah. if you know 29 of them are exposed to, to potentially undue risk. So, and, and then scholarships and high school level, I mean, this question is asked to a high school athlete and uh, so I suppose it's relevant because it's still elitist. But yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's another one of those issues that's it comes up a lot and it's framed as, ha, got you. Because there's no trans athletes winning, you can't be, you can't be right when you say there's an advantage. Well, not if you understand what advantage really means. What's, I mean, just to, to sort of round up our discussion today, what's, what's interesting about this is that if you're listening to this podcast and you kind of get the sentiment of what we're talking about here, it sounds very logical. But we're seeing in the States at the moment that, that there are states who are trying to make sure that, that the, the, the sense and the science prevails. They're not allowing transgender athletes to participate in sport, those sort of things. Those states are actually getting... Uh, sort of they're suffering the consequences of not having major events because federations are saying well we don't want to go to that states because they are discriminating against transgender athletes and we're seeing that um with the 2022 uh, world cyclocross champs aren't we yeah that's that's due to be in arkansas uh which has now also introduced one of these bills that would regulate or prevent trans girls from doing girls sport the NCAA have said already that they're not going to send big events to those states and the UCI for those cyclocross is coming under pressure to do the same thing. So we're heading into boycott territory here, like South it's Africa. It's becoming political really, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's long gone political. And that's... Which, I, the, which I find bizarre that federations are... You would think that federations would be the ones wanting to protect the integrity of the sport they're mm. promoting. Than and f- then the governments actually the other way uh, we think it'd be the other way around. Yeah, and I don't know how we got to this point. As I said to you earlier, like eight nine years ago, I probably would have said no. Inclusion is fine because I believe you can achieve inclusion without compromising fairness. Now I'm informed, and I don't think that you can. I'm still open to the possibility that you might be able to. That future studies will will convince me of other otherwise, but I can't see it right now based on what we know. But I would imagine that a lot of well-intentioned people early on made the same incorrect deduction. And they said, we can do this. We can include and we can be fair at the same time. Yeah. Um, and maybe out but of... If, but if you're in sport, you know that's, that's hard to do. Oh, I mean, uh, it, it really, the federations, I'm amazed. But you remember, so they're coming under pressure, right? So they're, It's political, And I'll tell you what, when we, when we did the rugby thing, the... The, the social pressure and the and the organization of the groups that were opposed to our eventual guidelines 
was immense. Within a week of sending that thing out for consultation, the same talking points were coming at us from all around the world. Mm. And so there was this coordinated uh, attack where they'd identified five key messages. They're going to criticize A, B, C, D, and E. And we, I mean, in the end, the, the whole point of consultation was to hear that. And I can honestly say hand on heart that not a single one of those five hadn't been thrashed out by us in the room because we knew them all. They're so yeah. obvious. Yeah. And we, you know, like, oh, you haven't tested athletes. There's never been a study on the athletic population. We, we had some pretty bright people in that room and we knew that that was going to be an issue. It was, it was the single biggest thing that we argued and debated. And in the end, we were quite happy that when you added athletes, the same finding would persist. But we still said we'd be open to it. But the point I'm trying to make is that, that it was amazing like how coordinated it was because all of a sudden from North America, Australia, New Zealand, England and here, the same half a dozen talking points were being chucked at us and you could tell there was a playbook. And so there is a there is a there is a strong advocacy and I think what had happened it'd be amazing to go back to the nineties and early two thousands, is that is that women didn't have the same um voice early on. Mm-hmm. You know, the ISC decision early on was made primarily by by men. Mm. Um who I think are apathetic because this is not gonna affect them. Men's sport is the open category, this doesn't affect men. And so I think that there was probably a degree of apathy there. There certainly wasn't as much understanding. Like the, some of the studies that I've spoken about showing the retention of these biological differences are more recent. And so you could forgive people for acting on what they knew then, but maybe not for changing it once they knew new things. So I think that there's, and, and, and then there's this, there is, there is generally a social pressure to be inclusive, which I think is good. I'm not sitting here at all saying that we should deny people all rights. I just think sport is a special case, yeah. along with one or two others that other people can pick up and fight for. But there's no doubt that sport should be a special case where biological sex is the thing that makes the difference. Mm. And so now you're starting to see, you know, women are picking this up and there's mm. pressure being applied. The politicians are quite happy to do it, but it does it does sometimes feel to me like a it's a it's a classic example of like a diverging issue, and that, even on simple things this is happening. But now on a complex thing, you got these two sides, and it's like they're pulling on an elastic rope, you know, and they're just almost accelerating further and further apart. Yeah. To the extent that someone mailed me the other day saying that they're they're looking at making it a criminal offence if a trans girl participates in girls' sport. So that's ridiculous. Like you can't criminalize. No. <laughs> but that's the kind of like polarization that's happening. So I just wish there was more sense. Um, it's, it's emotional. It's never going to be sense on emotion. Yeah, but, sure. but there we are. So that's, well, it's been emotional that's really overcome sense to some extent. Because yeah, emotion always sounds a lot, is always a bit louder than sense, isn't it? When you look at social media right. and Sarah Silverman and all the people who've listened to this, this podcast. And incidentally, that's why. That's why what this debate probably needs is, is a handful of examples. So Hubbard participating in the Olympics is not good for the reasons that I believe, as I've explained, that's taking a place from a deserving biological female athlete. But it will only really affect the zeitgeist of this debate if she wins a medal. Yeah, it affects it to some degree through participation, but it's exponentially more effective if she wins a medal. Yeah, and so when when then the controversy a, will be highlighted exactly, and the debate will, you know, with the Castasemania thing, one of the big differences, I think there were two big differences between. Remember, there was a Duthi Chan case, I think, in 2015, the Indian sprinter who yeah. won the case, and then Castasemania lost the case in 2019. From my perspective, which was in it, 
uh, the biggest differences were, number one, the IAAF really tightened up their argument. By the time they got to the, the Semenya case, their argument was outstanding. It really was very good. I remember when we got that document, we, everyone was like, this is actually a great piece of work. They mm. finally managed to explain what the biological issues were better than they had in the past. They didn't pull punches like they had. Mm. But you know what really helped them? Was that the 2016 Olympic Games featured a podium of athletes with the same condition. Mm. And even though there's a chance that that's coincidence, it doesn't necessarily prove blah, blah, blah. When you put that in front of even like intelligent people who understand biases and <laughs> that that's a very compelling story mm. to overcome because would this happen if it wasn't an advantage? It's that's also easy for the say. general public to understand when exactly. they can see that in real terms. Right. Yeah. And so I mean, you don't, you don't want a situation where a transgender athlete seriously injures a a another athlete because of the because she's bigger and stronger. Yeah. Um, right. And it's proved because then, unfortunately, that's where the debate becomes quite easy to understand, really, doesn't it? And that's yeah. what we're saying is that if you had to take it like that, an example like that, which we hope never happens. Correct. That's, um, that's what we're trying to avoid. That's exactly what we're saying there. <laughs> so it's almost like there's a precautionary principle in that sense mm. because because you're right. The, and and I, I did see this a lot on Twitter when they announced Hubbard's qualification and potential selection is a lot of people said, great, I hope she now goes and wins it yeah. because then it'll be unavoidable and finally we won't have to continue to tell people, oh, but it, it, it is an advantage just because you haven't seen it yet because now you'd have seen it. Yeah. And nothing, nothing convinces people like, you know, holding something in their hands or seeing it happen. Yeah. Uh, I really hope they'll go we don't the other see... way if they saw that happening. I yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of majority. the counter argument to yeah. the Silverman. Where are these cases? Mm. Well, if there's five or six cases, mm. then you'll be able to say, there they are. Um, and then, of course, the, 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 the big thing that would shout the loudest is the one we all hope doesn't happen, and that is something serious. But yeah. let's hope that never happens. Yeah. Well, I hope that uh, for those of you listening, that we've given you some clarity on this transgender debate. And I'm sure this won't be the end of it. I think uh, we'll keep a careful eye on what happens with the selection of Hubbard potentially for the Olympic Games, if the Olympic Games happens at all. And I, I guess in the, in the next few years, we're going to see lots of uh, different cases like this that will come up and uh, be debated. But I hope this kind of clears up some of them. Before we go, we want to just uh, say a very special thank you to our wonderful Patreon supporters. And as you know, for most of you that follow our podcast regularly we uh, pay tribute to our new patreon members and i think ross has you got them there with you i do yes so ross, we use take it away we use patreon and we hope that it, it helps us keep the ads down i've been listening <laughs> now that cycling's begun the grand tour stage of the season i've been listening to the move again have you listened to any of it i love the move yeah except that yeah. like over a 40 minute show literally 12 minutes of advertisements yeah so let's just i mean for those of you listen to this podcast i'll tell you what our philosophy here is at science of sport is that we have we normally have three ad slots within our podcast and the reason why is we could have more but we don't want more because we believe the content's important to you as a listener. So we are very limited in terms of the advertising that we allow into our podcast for that exact reason. And we don't want to be the first 12 minutes of the podcast being full of ads. So this is why the support you give us on Patreon is so important plus, because it allows us to do this without encroaching on the content. Plus we don't we don't have control over the ads that get put in. Not always. And I, and no. I dread the day that like there's an advert for growth hormone or testosterone. We do have in some fact, control. In fact, <laughs> if you've listened to this podcast today and you've heard an advert for buying testosterone, please let me know because that'll be know. quite funny. No, we do have some control over it. But I yes. remember when I had a, I used to run a website, the Science of Sports, it still exists. 
exists, but I hardly ever update it. And I remember writing a series of articles on doping, and I used mm. to have Amazon ads in the left column, and I was selling, <laughs> I was selling testosterone on a website about anti-doping. <laughs> That's the problem. So we'd rather not do that nonsense. Exactly. So we we have patrons. This is a community that pledges donations every month. We have three levels. They are Olympic athletes, champions, and legends. And we've got a few to welcome this week, seven in total. So at the Olympic athlete level, big, big thanks to Andrew Carey, to Jack Hamilton, to Ian Thomas, to Charlie Johnson, and to Joe Warren. Thanks very much for your pledges. Then we have one Olympic champion. That's the middle sort of tier. That is Hans-Peter Schmidt. Thanks very much, Hans-Peter. And then we have an Olympic legend joining our pantheon of greats. That is Gems. I think the name is Gemma. Uh, thanks very much to you, Gemma. And yeah, we've we've been good since we committed to doing more frequent podcasts. Yep. We hope that you've enjoyed them as well, and we'll certainly try our best to keep up the momentum. So thank you once again to all those patrons for your support. And Rosberg, thank you for all your preparation for today on a very uh, tricky and interesting debate, and we hope that uh, you've enjoyed our podcast. Uh, but for us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.